Hey, good morning. There's something about uh, church at 8 a.m. during a pandemic that feels like y'all are especially committed. <laughs> um, so thanks for, thanks for being here this morning, for joining us. If you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Esther chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. It's 14 verses. We're going to work through the whole chapter. Uh, and I want to I kind of set the scene here for what Esther chapter 5 is by recounting a commercial. It was actually a Geico commercial from like 2016, I think, uh, three, four years ago, somewhere in there. There were four, uh, what looked like, we'll just call them young adults, and they're, it's obviously like a life and death kind of situation. It feels almost like a horror movie sort of thing. They're running through some trees. They come up on what looks like an abandoned, creepy house, and they start giving their ideas for like how it is that they could survive the situation that they're in. And one says, let's hide in the attic. One says, let's go in the basement. One says, why don't we just get in that running car, which is clearly the best idea. And then the fourth one says, no, why don't we hide behind those chainsaws? Right, and so they they go and they hide and whoever like the killer person is, is just standing there like shaking his head. It's a life and death situation. They're comically trying to make the decision that would ensure them life. And in kind of like normal horror movie style, they make a decision that makes absolutely no sense, which is the way that usually works out. Esther 5, three life and death situations. Three literal, real life and death situations for at least four people, but also for an entire group of people. That's what we're gonna see as we read through this chapter this morning. And while it would be easy and tempting, like we talked about last week, to just kind of look at Esther and say, how do I just be Esther in any of my situations? How do I take what Esther does and try to apply it to my life? As is the case in any section of scripture, God is the one that we are to be looking at in this story. He might not be named, it might, the, the text may not tell us, and then God did fill in the blank. But in any section of scripture, and particularly when we read a narrative, the question we ought to be asking ourselves is about God, not about any of the characters. And so while we work our way through this, we're going to see what these individuals do and the decisions that they make and the way those play out. We're going to keep our eyes on the Lord. He's the main character here. He's the main character in all of scripture. And so to do anything other would be to miss the point of what God is trying to say in this section of scripture. We started this whole series with a question, how big is your view of God? That's gonna come back to us today. In the middle of these life and death situations, we're gonna see how God's sovereignty and his providence actually intersect in real life. And in three different ways, in prayer, in our action, and with our idols. That's what we're going to see this morning. Here's the main point. We used this actually a couple weeks ago. It's still true a few chapters later. A sovereign God is always sovereign. We'll see the way that intersects with prayer, with our actions, and with our idols. Take a look at the first two verses of chapter 5 with me. On the third day... Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther and she approached 
and touched the tip of the scepter. Context is key here. It's always important when we read any passage of scripture to not just take one particular verse or a couple of verses in isolation, like Philippians 4.13, Jeremiah 29.11. They look great on on like a snazzy background on social media or hung up on your wall, but there's more going on in and around those verses in order to really understand what's being said in those or in any particular passage of scripture. And so in this case, it's helpful for us to go back to what was happening at the end of chapter four so that we can understand what happens at the beginning of chapter five. Mordecai reminded Esther that she wasn't safe, regardless of whether she chose to go in before the king or not to. Go in before the king, you might die. Don't go in before the king, you will die. You and your father's house, all of your people. He also reminds her that whether or not she goes in before the king to plead on behalf of her people, that God will be faithful to his promise. He will preserve his people. Deliverance will arise, relief will arise, whether from you or from somewhere else. So Esther tells Mordecai to have all the Jewish people uh, spend three days fasting for her. In the Bible, fasting and prayer are always intertwined. All biblical fasting is accompanied by intentional prayer. So what are the people, the Jewish people of Persia doing for three days? They're fasting and praying that the Lord would use Esther as the means by which he intervenes, relents on behalf of his people. In Joel 2, 12 to 14, perhaps he will even leave behind a blessing. And then Esther declares, if I perish, I perish. That sets up what happens at the start here of chapter five. On the third day, Esther appears wearing her royal clothing. She stands in what is kind of the inner courtyard to the throne room of the palace. So area where the king is seated, an inner courtyard that's kind of around that. There would have been a further out courtyard. Esther doesn't go all the way into the throne, but she goes into what would essentially be the entryway into the throne room. It would be like if someone stood out through those back double doors And if you were standing here, you could see them, but they're not actually in the sanctuary. That's where Esther is standing, wearing what she feels like is, you know, her royal best. And as she looks into the throne room, what she would have seen would have been incredibly intimidating. There are a couple of relief sculptures that have been found in the area of Persia from this time, depicting what the throne room looked like. The king seated there on a throne, five or six Uh, officials or servants or advisors surrounding him and one very large man holding an axe off to his side. Both sculptures show the same picture. Why is that person there? Well, because if someone comes in uninvited, what's supposed to happen? They're to be killed. And he's there with the axe, ready to do that quickly and efficiently should it need to happen. So Esther, standing in this inner courtyard, heart rate, probably at about 210 beats per minute or something like that, just hammering in her chest, looking in at a very intimidating sight when the king sees her, tips his scepter to her. 
We were told in chapter 4 that that was the only means by which if you came into the presence of the king uninvited that you could live. And he does that. Think about one of the reversals that happens in this chapter. We talked about these last week. Vashti was removed from her throne for not coming when the king asked. Esther is about to be rewarded for coming to the king when he didn't ask. There's a switch there that we're supposed to see. It's how the author of Esther is setting up this entire story. She hasn't seen the king for a month, and yet she gains favor. Back in chapter two, when she first entered into uh, this whole sort of choosing of a queen sort of pageant thing, she gained favor multiple times in chapter two in the eyes of the people that were serving her, in the eyes of the king's primary eunuch, and in the eyes of the king. Now in chapter five, she's standing out there, hasn't seen the king for a month, gains favor again, and he grants her life. That's a matter of life and death number one. In the first two verses of the chapter, how does it come about? It comes about by the sovereignty of God at work through the prayer of his people. What did she have the Jewish people in the kingdom do? Spend three days fasting, praying. The sovereignty of God often works through the prayers of his people. We arrive at a challenging question here, a question that's often phrased something like this. If God is sovereign and in control of all things, working them toward the accomplishment of his eternal will, why would we pray? He's going to do everything that he wants to do, whether I pray to him or not. The tip, that question is typically asked for one of a few reasons. Number one, some people ask it as a way to actually argue against the sovereignty of God. Look at scripture. God hears his people pray, and it appears that he changes his mind at times. Maybe he's not sovereign after all, and my prayers change his mind and affect what he's going to do. Sometimes it's asked for another reason more or less a reason to get out of the task of prayer. If God's going to do whatever he wants to do, what's it matter if I spend time praying? Why does it matter if I pray for the gospel to go to people that are unreached? Why does it matter if I pray for God to work a particular way in someone's life? Why does it matter if I spend my time praying that God would heal or that he would comfort? He's going to do whatever he wants to do. Why should I pray? I would argue that that question ought to be flipped. If God is sovereign over all things, and you believe that, sovereign meaning not just that he has the power to do whatever he wants in order to accomplish his purposes, but that he effectually uses that power to accomplish his purposes. If God is sovereign, he's working all things toward the accomplishment of his will, why would we not pray? Remember the question, how big is your view of God? Is it big enough to include the reality that a God who is sovereign over all things is also sovereign over your acts of prayer? 
Is your view of God big enough to include the fact that the means by which he wants to accomplish his will might be through the uh, working through the prayers of his people, that he would cause his people to pray a certain way that he might act in response to their prayer? Is your view of God's sovereignty large enough to include that? John Piper says it this way. Prayer is a human act that God has ordained and which he delights in because it reflects the dependence of his creatures upon him. He has promised to respond to prayer and his response is just as contingent upon our prayers as our prayer is in accordance with his will. Sometimes it feels like we are stirred or led to pray in a certain way. In fact, maybe one of the most common like Christianese phrases is, I don't know, God just really put you on my heart today. Yeah, absolutely. God can do that with someone, stirring in you a desire to pray for them. Is your view of God large enough that he could stir within you or within his people a longing to pray a certain way that he might act in accordance with that prayer accomplishing a will that he has laid out from eternity past. Our prayer is to be in line with the will of God. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But it's also at the will of God. Romans 8, 27, the Holy Spirit, God, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes you come before him, something's stirring inside of you to pray, and you can't even really come up with the words to say. Scripture tells us in that moment, the Holy Spirit intercedes according to God's will that he might act according to his purposes. Now it creates another really big question. If I feel stirred to pray in a particular way, how come I feel stirred and God doesn't do the thing that I was asking? What does that mean? How do I handle that? It could be that the stirring to pray is increasing within us a dependency upon the God that we pray to. It could be that the desire, the stirring within us to pray is that we might spend time wrestling with exactly what the will of God is and the prayer changes us. It could be that the stirring inside of you to pray was a fleshly desire, not necessarily a Holy Spirit-driven desire. Prayer is a marvelously, beautifully complex act. And God always responds. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, Sometimes he says, not now. Sometimes he works inside of us. So let me ask the question again. If God is sovereign over all things, working them toward the accomplishment of his will, why would we not pray? Esther 5 is a picture of God's sovereignty and humanity's prayer working in perfect harmony. He intends to save his people and he intends to do so in part through their prayer. Fast for me for three days so that when I go in there before the king, 
he might grant me life. Now, keep the big picture in mind again. Esther needs to be granted life for what reason? That the Jewish people might be saved. Her life absolutely matters going in there before the king. That God might work through her to save his people. The people pray. Esther joins them in their fasting. and She walks in at the start of chapter 5. And the king tips the gold scepter to her. If you're a Jewish person reading this story, it's impossible to undersell how important this is. If you're a Jewish person reading this account, you say to yourself, great, Esther lives. Now she can work to save the Jewish people. We read this story as individualistic Americans and we say, whew, Esther lived. That was the most important part. Esther lives as a means by which God might deliver his people. Look at verses three through eight. What is it, Queen Esther, the king asked her, whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be given to you. And if it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. First two verses, Esther does the bold thing. She walks straight into that inner courtyard, puts her life at risk. If I perish, I perish. She's granted life. That was life and death number one. Here's life and death number two. And it's all the Jewish people that hang in the balance. And Esther starts to work more subtly. Come to dinner. Bring Haman. As if she just put her life in jeopardy for the sake of a date night, right? That's what it looks like. She stands out there dressed in her royal finery, hasn't seen the king for a month, puts her life at risk, he tips the scepter, and she says, I'm just looking for dinner. They come, it goes great. The king reasserts his offer to give her whatever she wants. The second time through, verse seven, it looks like she's going to plead on behalf of her people, implore the king. This is my petition and my request. If I found favor in the eyes of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, come to dinner tomorrow. The slowness of this would be almost infuriating to a Jewish reader. You've already done the bold thing. He'll say that he'll give you whatever he wants. Just ask for it. And Esther starts to work real slow. Look at what she's done. She knows the king. This is a man who likes parties. In fact, we've already seen three of them in the book of Esther. One before a war council. One to celebrate the party that was just thrown. One in honor of Esther when she was crowned queen. And now two. Just three person dinner parties. This is a man who likes to be in charge. And so Esther when she's giving the second invitation, says, tomorrow I'll do what the king has asked. Sounds great, but who's actually running the show here? Esther, not King Ahasuerus. 
She says the first time, bring Haman, come to dinner. He says, get Haman as quickly as we can. Let's go to dinner. She says the second time, let's do dinner tomorrow and I'll do what you ask. And he says, get Haman, we're going to dinner tomorrow. Remember the decree that was given at the end of chapter one, women will honor their husband and every man will be the master of his own house. Esther's calling the shots here. And it's subtle. And it's just as much in the hand of God's sovereignty and providence as her boldness was at the end of chapter four. At times, God is bold and overt in his sovereignty and providence. At times, God acts subtly in his sovereignty and providence. There's no miraculous work here. No plague of hail, no swarm of locusts, no river of blood. blood. God doesn't rush by in a fierce storm or boom from heaven in a loud voice. Instead, the people in the book of Esther are nudged forward by God's providence, moving them in line with where he wants them to be. Esther's wisdom and shrewdness and subtlety here are under the sway of God's sovereignty and providence in the same way that her boldness is. An Israelite, a Jewish person at the time or one reading would think to themselves, just ask the king already. And yet while God is sometimes bold and sometimes subtle, the same is true for how we engage in the world around us as Christians. At times, we ought to act boldly and allow God to handle the results. At times, we ought to act subtly and allow God to handle the results. Let's just think through passages of Scripture. There are times where God calls for and uses the bold actions of his people. Moses, going in before Pharaoh. David, deciding to go out and fight Goliath. Daniel, choosing to pray despite an edict and being thrown into a lion's den. Elijah, facing off with the prophets of Baal. Esther, in the king's throne room. Peter, standing before the Sanhedrin, having just been arrested and proclaiming the gospel. Paul, proclaiming the gospel to the very people who threw him into prison. Those are bold actions, and God's sovereignty and providence holds and guides them all. And yet, there are times when God calls for and uses subtle, wise actions from his people. The Israelites sending two spies into Jericho before they cross the river and begin their conquest of the promised land. Esther inviting the king to two dinners despite him already promising to give her whatever she asks for. Paul proclaiming the gospel in Athens using the temples that he sees to false gods. The same is true for us. When a missionary or church planner puts together a plan for reaching a people group or a city, God's working sovereignly and providentially. When you think carefully about how to disciple a young believer, God's working sovereignly and providentially. When you work hard to connect the reality of the gospel to what you see happening in the life of a friend that you've been praying for for years, God's at work sovereignly, providentially. When a pastor spends hours thinking through a sermon, God's at work sovereignly and providentially. We can take bold actions and trust God to handle the results, or we can take subtle actions and allow God to handle the results. In our world today, particularly in social media spaces, it often seems like Christians just want to act boldly 
at all times when the reality is they're acting foolishly. And there can be a very fine line there. Our foolishness doesn't thwart God's sovereign work. But at the same time, we don't always need to burst through a brick wall like the Kool-Aid man. It's as if we think we've got a hammer and therefore everything must be a nail. And so we just pound away when maybe the best option would be to work more subtly, give things some time, let God work sovereignly and providentially through slower actions. We can be wise, subtle, intentional, well thought out and allow God to be sovereign in the midst of it. That's what happens here in the middle of Esther chapter five. The lives of an entire race of people hang in the balance. And Esther says, I'm gonna take a couple days before I ask my question. And God's sovereign in the middle of it. He's sovereign in our prayer. He's sovereign in our action. Let's finish the chapter. Look at verse nine. That day Haman left, full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his, his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she prepared. I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Two options when it comes to our idols, an idol being something that we worship other than God. We can stir them up and they will destroy us, or we can starve them out and they will be destroyed. Watch what happens here with Haman. He heads out from the first night's dinner and he is riding an absolute high. He's been honored by the king. His decree, his edict got the royal stamp of approval. Literally, the king just gave him his signet ring so that Haman could send out this decree to all the places in Persia. He was invited to a private dinner with the king and queen. He's also been drinking, we're told. Hard to say what impact that has on the situation. But he thinks he has it all. What more could he possibly need? He's been given the recognition that he desperately wants, that he thinks he deserves. And then while walking home, he passes by the king's gate, the civil center of the Persian kingdom. And there's his nemesis, Mordecai. And for the second time, Mordecai does nothing in response to seeing Haman. And look at how strong the emotion is. End of verse nine. Haman was filled with rage. He controls that rage in Mordecai's presence and he gets home. And once there, he 
gathers together his friends and his family, his wife. He starts to recount just how wonderful his greatness is, all of his wealth, his many sons, to which his wife probably thought to herself, I know exactly how many sons we've got, Haman. Tells him about how the king has honored him and promoted him. Queen Esther invited no one but me and the king to join her at this banquet. And then look at the admission in verse 13. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. There was, there's a scene in the musical The Greatest Showman. And, uh, Hugh Jackman's character, P.T. Barnum, is standing off the side of a stage and Jenny Lind, this performer that he's uh, brought to America and is taking on this tour to sing is out on a stage and she sings the song Never Enough. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars they steal from the night sky would never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. And Jenny Lind is singing the song, but the camera keeps flashing to Hugh Jackman, to P.T. Barnum. He's got this look on his face, like he's totally in awe of what's happening. There's a giant crowd of very wealthy people, which is what he's always wanted. And the performers that he brought into his initial kind of circus world are standing up in the back of the room and the camera flashes to them a couple times, right? He, he thought he had things going with them, but now he's got this performer in this opera house full of wealthy people and he's standing off to the side of the stage and it'll never be enough. Towers of gold, still too little. Haman, sitting with his friends and family. Here's my wealth. It's how wonderful my family is. The king promoted me. The queen invited me to a dinner which she invited no one else to and yet it will never satisfy me. What's he just revealed to us? He's got an idol. And that idol is being threatened. He wants nothing more than to be seen as important and significant. That is what rules Haman's life. And when Mordecai won't bow down to that particular idol, it enrages Haman. How does the sovereignty of God intersect with our idols? I want us to take another look at two aspects of chapter five here. Early in this uh, series of walking through the book of Esther, I said it would be a good idea to read all of Esther and mark all the places you saw a coincidence, quote unquote, and then remind yourself that what you're actually seeing is God's providence. Haman leaves the dinner party, walks by the king's gate, and who just so happens to be sitting there? Mordecai. Is that a coincidence? No. That's a God-ordained moment that is going to present Haman with a choice. You can either feed this idol, Haman, or you could starve it. Second aspect, look at Haman's emotions. Typically, anything that either threatens or feeds our idols will create strong emotions within us. In just a few word span in chapter nine, Haman goes from full of joy and in good spirits to filled with rage. When God made us fearfully and wonderfully, 
He wired us. He wired us in terms of our disposition. He wired us in terms of our emotions, our personalities, and our tendencies. Now, our emotions are not infallible. They're subject to our flesh and can be manipulated by our own brokenness. But they do inform us, not necessarily of what's happening outside around us, but of what's happening inside of us in response to the things happening around us. And here, Haman's emotions are highlighting a reality inside of him. The same is true for us. What creates the strongest emotional responses inside of you? Paying attention to that reality is a way to find out where the idols in your heart might be lurking. What makes you almost unthinkably happy? Gives you the most joy? Helps you feel the most at peace? What is it that happens in the world around you that leaves you feeling full of joy and in good spirits? Flip that around. What is it that creates rage inside of you? What is it that takes you from being maybe neutral or maybe in good spirits and can swing that all the way to the other side instantly? Allow God, the Holy Spirit, to use those strong emotions to speak to you about where you might be worshiping something other than him. Because when your idol is threatened, it can create rage inside of us. God designs your circumstances, sometimes overtly and boldly, sometimes very subtly. And he may have moved you into a position to have a spotlight shown onto one of your idols. And when he does that, he's doing so in his goodness. Because breaking our attachment to those idols is the most loving thing that God can do for us in our life in relation to them. When we allow ourselves to see God's sovereignty in those ways, two options are available for us. We can either choose in that moment to feed our idol or we can choose to starve our idol. When I was working through the book of Esther like six months ago, just personally, I was haunted by the end of chapter five. Haman's idol of significance and importance is threatened. His friends and his wife give him awful advice, which is to just feed that idol to the utmost, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Is life and death number three. Haman feeds this idol inside of him and it causes him to look at the thing that threatens it and say, I'll kill you. Eliminate you from my life. And it sounds extreme. 
And most of us wouldn't build a 75 foot pole in our front yard where we could impale the person or thing that threatens our idols. But in our hearts and in our minds, so often when something starts to press on that which seems most important to us that we bow down in worship, we will say to ourselves, build the gallows. I'm done with that person. I'm done with that thing. And rather than take a hard look inward at what our emotions might be telling us and do the difficult work of uprooting the idol in our life, we'll try to take the shortcut of getting rid of the thing that challenges it. Build the gallows. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. How many times I've said that in my own life? How many times in our world right now, we can see people saying that about all sorts of things because idols are being pressed on left and right in our own world right now. And it's a whole lot easier to say, build the gallows than it is to take a look inward and say, what might God be revealing to me about places where I worship something other than him? Two options. When the sovereignty of God puts us in a position to confront our idols. We can stir them up and they will destroy us or we can starve them out and they will be destroyed. Look, a 75 foot gallows is built in Haman's front yard and I don't want to spoil the story, but Mordecai's not ending up on that. Haman is. And the same thing happens to us spiritually when we insist on feeding our idols. What's the answer to that idolatry problem? Think back about how this chapter began. Each and every human being does, in fact, face a life and death reality, a matter of spiritual life and death. Think about Esther's moment in front of the king, but get it into gospel focus. You come before the king of kings dressed in what you think is your absolute royal finery and it will appear as nothing but filthy rags to him. You need something different. You need to be robed in the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's a garment that only grace can give you. One that only faith can receive. Then when you come into the presence of the king of kings, you will live because your life is hidden in the perfectly righteous life of Christ and his blood has washed your filthy rags clean. Life and death. And a sovereign God is always sovereign. If we're robed in that, we come to the throne boldly, Hebrews 4, 16, in prayer. No cowering, no hoping or wishing out in the courtyard. We come right into the very presence of the king and we pray bold prayers, knowing that God is sovereign in the middle of our praying. It also means we live with confidence. We know that God is sovereign over the events of history. We also know that our actions matter. And so living in a humble state of Holy Spirit-empowered obedience, relishing the grace of God's sovereignty and providence, we're free to act boldly or subtly as any given situation demands and leave it up to him to work out the purposes of his will. And when we're faced with the reality of our idols, we can remember our moment of cleansing. We can picture ourselves before the throne of God only by the grace of God. And in that place, we're reminded that what Christ has done on our behalf and given to us by grace is better than whatever false promise our idol might make. And we could stand on the side of the stage while someone sings never enough and know that there is only one thing that ever will be enough. 
And that's the grace of God given to us by Jesus Christ. Where's the sovereignty of God in relation to our prayer? He is right in the middle of it. Where's the sovereignty of God in relation to our actions? Right in the middle of it. And where's the sovereignty of God when our idols are threatened? Right in the middle of it. Longing for us to cherish grace and his goodness above anything else. Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The options with our idols, feed them or starve them. And most of us, most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, look at our idol and we say better is one day in that thing's courts than a thousand anywhere else when we ought to remember our moment of being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and say better is one day in that court than what a thousand idols could possibly give to me. We're gonna sing this song, Christ is enough for me. Let's sing it together as a prayer. Amen? Amen, let's sing.